Welcome back to Russian Roulette, the podcast from the Russia and Eurasia program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. I'm your host, Jeff Metcalf. This week, I sit down with Alexei Klebnikov, who is a Middle East and North Africa expert at the Russian International Affairs Council. Uh, he's also a private consultant uh, who works with various think tanks and other institutions uh, in the U.S., in Europe, in the Middle East, in Russia. Uh, he gets around. And we're going to talk about uh, Russia's role in Syria, its relations with other players in the region, and what it means for U.S.-Russian relations. Come join us. Joined in the studio today by Alexei Khlebnikov, uh, Middle East expert at the Russian International Affairs Council. Uh, Alexei, welcome. Thank you for having me. So the U.S. has pulled out of Syria, uh, or at least has pulled out of northern Syria. What does that mean for Russia's role in the conflict, and, and how does that change where things are likely to go? Well, in the first place, and you rightly mentioned that the U.S. didn't completely full, pulled out from Syria. And um, actually, in my opinion, the uh, entire development actually puts Russia in a quite delicate and uh, more challenging situation. So now there is more responsibility and burden to Russia in dealings in uh, Syria in general, and in particular with north and northeastern Syria, and more uncertainties and risks. So that now Russia needs to sit both uh, Ankara and Damascus to the negotiation table, a table and strike a deal which will finalize the northeastern Syria problem. And also it needs to negotiate uh, or broker negotiations between Damascus and Kurds. And as far as United States troops still in eastern Syria and they kind of still backing Kurds, it's kind of discouraging them to, to talks with Damascus, which actually complicates the entire negotiations deal. Right. So I think what's been striking about this entire process is that it's really left Russia as the power that all of the others have to deal with. It's the only power that's capable of talking to both the Turks and the Kurds and you know the Americans in addition. So this is a, a greater burden, greater responsibility than I think Russia has been typically taking on, whether in Syria or other parts of the world. You know, what does that mean for, for the future of Russian influence in Syria and in the region more generally? Well, it's again very as a double-edged sword. So on the one hand, since Russia already established its military presence and got these two military bases, uh, air base in Khmeimim and the naval base in, in, in Tartus, so it's uh, it's there to stay. That's, that's one clear point. On the other hand, uh, in order to be kind of successful and to uh, maintain and even grow its influence in the region, uh, Russia needs to convert its military successes into political and economic dividends. And it seems that now Moscow is struggling with that because, I mean, as I already mentioned, farther we go, more uncertainties and more risks on the way we have. And the political process inside Syria also, it's a, it's a very complicated thing. So the Constitutional Committee just uh, started to work. And, uh, you know, the recent interview of Assad, uh, which he gave, like, first time in the couple or three years, he made it clear that Constitutional Committee won't uh, have a... Um, significant influence on, on anything there. So it's very hard for Moscow to monetize or convert its uh, military successes. Yes, it uh, propped up Assad, didn't allow the state system and structures collapse, but still it's a long way to go in order to you know uh, stabilize country, then regain control of the entire territory since we have now Turkish and American presence, and also to reconcile uh, between parties in Syria, into Syrian re reconciliation. So what would success for Russia look like in Syria? 
That's a good question. Probably Moscow doesn't have the clear understanding where it must be or wants to be in uh, like five or ten years. But definitely success is the uh, gaining uh, full control over the Syrian territory back under the Syrian government control political process and definitely preserving its, uh, its military presence in the country. Now, is that the same definition of success that Russia had when it first got involved in the Syrian conflict? I think that Moscow didn't have any like long-term plan. As, uh, as far as I know, in the beginning when Russia decided to deploy forces to Syria, it didn't plan uh, that it would take so long. So actually, the, the situation appeared to be way different and more difficult to deal with. And we still have its uh, fifth year when uh, Russian forces are there. And um, there is no end uh, is seen of this uh, conflict and, and situation. And basically, the, the farther we go, the more complications we uncover. And as long as we are moving more from the military stage of the conflict to the political stage, it opens up more uncertainties. And again, the more difficulties could arise, although among the trilateral format, this uh, Russia, Turkey, and Iran, because all countries have quite uh, a lot of uh, disagreements on Syria, and it takes them quite a, an, an effort to compromise on, uh, on anything in this country. Yeah, I, I want to ask about those two relationships because I think they're both incredibly complex and have changed a lot as a result of the, the Russian intervention in Syria. Certainly with Turkey, where just a couple of years ago, uh, Turkey shot down a Russian jet that had, according to the Turks, crossed into its airspace. And then there were sanctions and there was a lot of uh, acrimony. And now, even if Ankara and Moscow don't necessarily see eye to eye about the future of Syria, they have the Astana process. They have... Um, at least some negotiation and collaboration around what's going to happen in Syria after the American withdrawal. So what has allowed Russia and Turkey to move from that very polarized position where they were at the start of the conflict, where Turkey was seeking Assad's ouster and Russia was seeking to keep him in power, to where they are now, which is perhaps wary partners, but, but partners nonetheless? Well, in the first place, we shouldn't forget that Turkey is Russia's neighbor and one of the largest economic partners. It works both ways. So I would say that partnership between them is inevitable. And I think they agreed to disagree on certain things and also agreed to focus more on things in common. And despite having differences on Syria, they both understand that the conflict eventually should be should be solved. Like I think Erdogan clearly understands that with Turkey being surrounded by all kind of destabilized countries or weak countries, I mean it doesn't add to its economy. It doesn't help to to develop economically. No neighbors without problems, right. you might say. Yeah, yeah. Like previous Mehmet um, Davutoglu, foreign minister, he has this zero problem uh, mm -hmm. politics, and uh, now we have uh, no neighbors with without zero problems. problems. And eventually, it affects Turkish economy as well. And now, not only economy, but uh, Erdogan's political stance inside Turkey, his political image, and also the, the refugee problem. Right. So sooner or later, it's it was you know inevitable for like a reconciliation to happen. And what we see now, the relations partnership is uh, fully restored, even moved further. 
And also don't forget that it's not only Syria where Russia and Turkey negotiate. The Turkish stream will become operational, mm-hmm. I, I believe, in the end of December, beginning of January 2020. And the the nuclear power plant mm-hmm. construction, Akuyu, also is a quite a um, big structural project. So there are areas where uh, they definitely have close cooperation. And in Syria, again, I would like to stress that they still have differences on uh, even Kurds. Mm-hmm. Russia uh, does not see Kurds as as terrorists, whereas in, in Turkey, their uh, YPG is acknowledged as a terrorist mm-hmm. organization, as an offshoot of uh, PKK. And still, Russia, again, here playing a role of a moderator between both and trying to find some middle ground to allow, address Turkish security concerns on one hand, and also trying to provide security for Kurds to exclude any, any massacres or, you know, ethnic cleansing or uh, demographic changes inside Syria. And that's quite challenging. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So to drill down on that a little bit, I mean, what is Russia's position on the zones in northern Syria that are controlled by Turkish forces and on the future of Idlib, uh, where uh, Turkey is supposedly uh, in charge of a safe zone? And there are lots of people there that, as I understand, Russia doesn't like very much. Right. And uh, it's it's very good that you mentioned uh, northeast Syria and Idlib. I mean, these two areas are quite interconnected. In terms of uh, that, actually now we can see the same situation in northeast as we have been uh, having in Idlib for for years. So basically, after <clears throat> Sochi deal, which established this uh, ceasefire and uh, deal between Putin and Erdogan, where Turkey had to separate moderate uh, opposition from Hat uh, groups in Idlib, which it failed to do. And now it's 90% of the areas controlled by this, um, by HDS with this salvation government. And uh, we're hearing criticism from, from Kremlin, from, from Moscow, like why Turkey is not uh, sticking to, uh, to its commitments. And it seems like now the same situation happen, is happening in northeast Syria. Like a couple of days ago, Erdogan said that we know that uh, Kurds are still in Manbij, in Terifat, mm-hmm. and in the areas where they must have been withdrawn already. Uh, Russian defense minister declared that Kurdish withdrawal was complete even before the deadline uh, approached. So this kind of looking like certain uh, quid pro quo between the two mm-hmm. and possibility for kind of swap deal or like using one areas and situation there uh, against the other, it might be some trade-off between, uh, between the two. But definitely for, for Russia, it's, uh, I mean, in a couple of months, I think, uh, it will start to push harder in Turkey to withdraw from northeast Syria. Because otherwise, that uh, contradicts the entire narrative of Moscow that right. the, uh, the territorial uh, integrity of Syria should be restored yeah. mm-hmm. and so on and so forth. And also, to be honest, for, for Turkey in terms of, uh, so one of the goals, which Erdogan said, is to resettle at least mm-hmm. a million refugees right. to this, this um, spring uh, areas, which is like about 150 kilometers by, by 32 kilometers zone. And I don't think that it's economically now possible and sustainable for Turkey. Mm-hmm. So it will cost about like 20 or 30 billion dollars to resettle 1 million refugees. And uh, for current Turkish economy, it's I don't think that's the manageable task. Yeah, they're in a tough position because, you know, they've had, you see different figures, but upwards of 3 million refugees in the country probably. Yeah, 3.6, and yeah. they've 
you know, provided a, a refuge for them for, for several years now. But as we saw in the most recent Turkish elections, there's a backlash building. And for domestic political reasons, I think Erdogan needs to figure out some way of managing this problem and, you know, getting as many of these people repatriated <coughs> or, as possible. Mm-hmm. But if it is financially beyond the means of what the government can do, they, I'm not sure how they get out of this problem. Yeah, but that's, that's exactly the kind of a trap uh, in which Erdogan now is. And also, I mean, I think every single major actress, so if we look at Turkey or US or Russia, they're in a, uh, in a way trapped in Syria. So they don't have a clear cut, you know, ways out of the conflict. And uh, it seems that all parties started to understand or started to be tired of the conflict. It's not just that they need to... Uh, need some kind of political doing, deal. Exactly, that some compromises. To... Like, look what happened uh, over October month. What we saw is U.S.-Turkey dealings, Russia-Turkey dealings, and I think Russia-U.S. dealings also took place. It's impossible to believe that all these movements of you know, U.S. troops withdrawing from the border observation posts uh, using the same road and simultaneously going with uh, Russian military police and the uh, Syrian army, but in, in the opposite direction. directions. It wasn't, I mean, it, you couldn't imagine that just uh, like a month or two months ago. And uh, these moves are impossible without any, I mean, uh, z- zero coordination. Mm-hmm. So it seems that certain coordination between all of them, like uh, Turkey, Russia, and U.S., took place. And also one indicative moment when U.S. and Russia, first time in eight years, together vetoed EU proposed <laughs> UN Security Council resolution, uh, you know, aimed at blaming Turkey and criticizing Turkish uh, operation. So mm-hmm. it might be not an, an, an full-fledged agreement, but some sort of coordination is there. And I think that's also quite positive signal that in the future, I mean, this might be utilized in a in a form of, of a deal also between Russia and U.S. Uh, and Turkey. So to, to, to manage this kind of triangle mm-hmm. in, uh, in North East Syria majorly. Right. And when we think about the overall complexion of Syria going forward, of course, it's more than a triangle. There's another country that we right. mentioned a little bit, but we want to touch on, which is Iran. Um, you know, unlike Turkey, uh, Iran was largely on the same side as Russia throughout the conflict in the sense that they were supporting the restoration of Assad's control over the country. Mm-hmm. But at least in tactical terms, Russia and Iran are often not pursuing the same objectives. Um, and now as the conflict moves towards a new phase and as there's more diplomacy around trying to, to create a political deal that will allow the, the players to withdraw, can you talk a little bit about what that means for the, the cooperation between Russia and Iran that has existed this far in Syria and how much those differences between what they're ultimately trying to achieve are now going to be um, visible? Mm-hmm. Well, with the uh with Iran is uh, also uh, relations are quite uh, complicated. We talk about Syria and um, majorly when the conflict moves more to the political part, Iran is uh, becoming more capable of being a spoiler to anything which Russia tries to propose to push on Assad. So, in the we, sense that Russia wants Assad to be flexible on some of these things, in the yeah, more compro- yeah, 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 be more inclined to compromise mm-hmm. and uh, do some concessions. And we already have many examples of uh, when Moscow struck uh, deals with opposition or with uh, you know U.S. on uh, safe zones and uh, reconciliations. Mm-hmm. Then they were sabotaged by by the government and by Iranian forces as well. And that's you know also a clear signal that. Iran can uh, can be a spoiler to mm-hmm. to any initiative which it might not like, and that 
risk uh, is uh, is very important to take into account when uh, when talking about this. I mean. Russia-Iran dealings. But also, in a way, in the last eight years, definitely Iran entrenched itself way deeper into Syrian fabric. They own lands, enterprises, factories. They built more influence within the the military structures, within uh, security apparatus, which in a certain way hinders Russian attempts to reformat and to reform, basically, uh, security and, and and Syrian military. Mm-hmm. And Iranian presence there is sort of um, doesn't allow it to be as flexible as Moscow would like to see. And uh, that, I think, creates certain tensions. And in the future, the potential, not escalation, but uh, increasing frictions between the two will be more more likely. Yeah, I, I think it's kind of striking. You were talking before about how Russia, Turkey, the United States all have an objective in some way or another of disengaging or of reducing their commitments in Syria. And it's not clear to me that Iran has that same view. I think there are there's been some pushback inside Iran to this expenditure of resources for sort of empire building in Syria. But at the same time, it seems that the, the Iranian government is very committed, as you were just talking about, to really entrenching itself. Well, it's uh, in general, I would say that Iranian involvement in the conflict is quite different in uh, in in form and essence. As we have Russian, you know, air forces, special forces on the ground, Iranian influence there is based more on a proxy um, groups. Uh, Iranian Shia, Hezbollah is yeah. not playing now at all. It, it played a huge role back in 2012, 13, mm-hmm. 14. That's uh, that's true, but like other formations, uh, brigades from from, from Pakistan, mm-hmm. uh, from Iraq, and from Afghanistan. So, and that gives uh, gives it a quite stark difference. When uh, if you look at it, so you can see that Iran is applying some like horizontal uh, approach to Syria, basically entrenching itself and building some parallel structures, you know, mm-hmm. with this militias, right. warlords, and also entrenching itself uh, within uh, military apparatus. And whereas Russia is more having this vertical approach, trying to reinforce, uh, to save and reinforce the existing vertical mm-hmm. power structures right. in the country. And in a way, you see, it's kind of like a quite different approach. And also, it's I think it's important to notice that I don't think that Iran committed probably more than others. I mean, in economic terms, probably yes, because they provide loans and oil, diesel for uh, for the regime in Syria to survive. Uh, but in a way of uh, like actual formal presence, it's 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 less evident there. Mm-hmm. So, and Iran is in general in the in, in in the position quite quite different from from Russia and Turkey. It's kind of you can see that uh, all major dealings are happening between Russia and Turkey. And Iran is kind of looks like it's a bit sidelined, mm. uh, but simultaneously we don't hear much of Iranian involvement in those talks, mm, like in the Astana, right? But but still, without Iran, anything is impossible because I think both Erdogan and Putin understand Iranians Iran's capabilities to be a spoiler to anything which they reach, and you need. Uh, you know, here three to dance, not two. Right, because again, they have this presence on the ground in the form of these proxy forces that have to be taken into consideration in some way or another. Yeah, true. Well, since we talked about Iran, we might as well discuss Israel too. Put it briefly, 
Russia clearly sees Israeli security concerns. And having built a solid relation, personal relations, Putin and Netanyahu, and uh, in general in the last several years, uh, Russia-Israeli relations and economic ties improved. Russia demonstrated its ability to at least respect and address Israeli security concerns. Although it's coming with certain you know, uh, limitations and certain unhappiness, especially with this, you know, uh, Israeli strikes and uh, the last year incident with a, with a plane, which was shot down by the Syrian air defense, but at the time when the Israeli jets were in, in Syrian skies. So it also increases the risk for increased tensions between the two. Mm-hmm. But also it... Uh, risk of incidents. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But also the recent years of cooperation between Russia and Israel on Syria... I mean, they immediately established the deconfliction channel. Mm-hmm. Uh, they immediately exchanged the, I mean, set up the direct communication between uh, intelligence and security services to be able to address any incident quickly uh, for deconfliction purposes. And that also un- uh, underlines how Moscow managed to build this security cooperation in military-to-military, security-to-security areas. Even with the United States, we have this direct deconfliction line, which I think uh, is used quite often. And the recent uh, events of, of October prove that. I mean, yeah. and also uh, elimination of Baghdadi. Cannot imagine that the aviation, I mean, helicopters were flown through like Syrian territory without noticing Russians, who is like as for hundred monitors, almost mm-hmm. like entire uh, Syrian airspace. So, anyways, uh, some sort of coordination isn't there. And that's the positive sign that if this cooperation or coordination is at place, that's already a good ground to, you know, build further mm-hmm. coordination in Syria, maybe maybe in broader region. So moving beyond Syria, uh, I guess, how has Russia's involvement in Syria been perceived in other parts of the Middle East? And what are the implications for, you know, Russian influence with countries like Saudi Arabia, Egypt, some of the other major players? Well, in order to give you numbers uh, of polls, I didn't look at them, uh, how uh, image of Russia changed uh, within the last years. But definitely, if we look at the political level of bilateral relations, I mean, Moscow succeeded um, to to convert its like quite sour relations with uh, the majority of GCC states into quite uh, well-working, constructive partnership. And that started exactly, I mean, and coincided with several factors which I think played a dominant role in um, defining Russia's Middle East policy beyond Syria. So first, there was the oil prices drop back in 2014-15, which uh, put Russia and Saudi Arabia and other uh, oil-rich monarchies on the same boat. Also, there was a uh, 2015 Iran nuclear deal which uh, was harshly criticized in Saudi Arabia, in, uh, in UAE, yes. <laughs> uh, kind of. And the feeling is that U.S. is uh, backstabbing them and uh, engaging with Iran at the expense of, mm-hmm. uh, of their security. And uh, that naturally also pushed them towards Russia in terms of like diversifying their portfolio of, of relations. And also, I think the, the entire event, events of, um, of the Arab Spring uh, also demonstrated sort of uh, uncertainty about whether U.S. will come and back or save regimes in Saudi Arabia, UAE, or anywhere, like after Mubarak and Bin Ali being uh, toppled, that question of people and elites in other countries started to question whether Washington will come and, and save 
at the time of the revolution or the threat to those regimes. And that, I think these three factors, they made original countries be more open to build uh, constructive relations with Moscow, not necessarily mm -hmm. replacing U.S. share partnership with, with Russia, but rather, you know... Um, supplementing. Uh, supplementing, exactly. Yeah. So no one is saying about like uh, total reorientation of Egypt from U.S. Right, towards right. Russia. That's just impossible. And I think Moscow clearly understands that. It's just using the opportunity which appeared and the countries themselves in the region also started to value more partnership with Russia. Like Turkey for the last several years used its relations with Russia as a bargaining chip. Uh, with the in, U.S. Exactly. Yeah. And that worked pretty uh, pretty well. And the same can be used uh, by Egypt, by Saudi Arabia, by UAE. Yeah. Well, I'm not sure it's worked that well for Turkey. I mean, right now Congress is considering uh, slapping sanctions on Turkey and there's already the – the backlash and the, and the sanctions over the S-400 sales. So. Right. But they may have pushed it too far. Yeah, but if, if you look in long term in the situation, if Washington continues their sanctions policy towards like everyone, then it, end, uh, it risks to end up sanctioning its partners and allies. Yeah. And in the long term, it will build more criticism and uh, defiance by U.S. partners of, of such behavior. So it yeah, basically, no, it's, I don't disagree. It's, it's, in, in long term, it's counterproductive. Yeah, also, I'm just saying if Turkey's goal was to be able to maneuver between Washington and Moscow, it may have slightly overplayed its hand. Probably. We still, uh, it still needs to be seen. But also, Turkey is still a NATO member. It's still an ally and super important partner for both U.S. and NATO as, as alliance in general. And I think it's, uh, I mean... Erdogan here plays a uh, quite, quite good role in terms of like he understands importance of Turkey for the alliance, for the United States, and he also understands how Turkey is important for Russia in its dealings in the Middle East, in the region. And also it's not only in the Middle East, but the, the Turkish stream, mm -hmm. which will be next uh, expanded towards Europe, uh, this kind of uh, replacing the South and corridor, which uh, U.S. has been long pushing for. So it's 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 multi-dimensional, multi-layered uh, pie of interests uh, which Turkey here pursues. Yeah, it's it, it's a complicated neighborhood um, to be sure. Now, how has the Russian intervention in Syria been perceived in some of the rest? Of, you, you talked about the GCC mm -hmm. countries. Obviously, there's not a lot of love for Assad um, in places like Saudi Arabia, um, and I, you know, I don't know a lot about Saudi Arabia. But have they been able to kind of compartmentalize what mm -hmm. Russia is doing in Syria from the other aspects of their relationship, or how has that affected ties? Well, that's uh, exactly a compartmentalization of relations uh, between Russia and Saudi Arabia, for example, Russia and Qatar, Russia and UAE. And in Syria, I think it was, I mean, it became quite clear for Saudi Arabia back in 2015 when Russia deployed its forces that actually it lost its game in Syria in terms of like, uh, and, and Qatar and, and UAE, like uh, funding and supporting mm -hmm. opposition. Like only Qataris spend over like hundred uh, billion dollars in supporting money for the opposition and armaments and everything. And uh, I think that now understanding that uh, they lost the game, they need to compensate and kind of to mitigate or to decrease their their losses actually. And how you can increase them, uh, de decrease them by being a part of the of the game again, but in other form. So basically, what now what Moscow is currently trying to do is to bring Gulf states on board with reconstruction mm -hmm. and investments in the Syrian economy. 
And one of the main arguments with also Russia uses is that, okay, if you want to be back, that's a good opportunity. And also, if you say you fear Iranian uh, expansion in Syria, okay, come with your money, come with your investments, and that would naturally limit mm-hmm. uh, the room the for Iranians. Iran. Exactly. Yeah. And also, I don't think that both like Saudi Arabia and UAE are happy with uh, Turkey building its uh, influence and presence in Syria. Because, I mean, that's quite rivalry between the, the this uh, Qatar-Turkey block and uh, Saudi Arabia, Egypt, UAE. And I think that inevitably they would want themselves to have some sort of capacities in Syria to be able to limit both Iranian and Turkish influence, but with economic mm-hmm. tools, with economic means. Right. So they've sort of adapted themselves to the fact that the landscape has changed significantly since 2014. Yeah. Correct. But still, I mean, there are a lot of challenges. And I think here America has stood quite strong in terms of like sending its message that uh, it won't tolerate any direct official engagement of Gulf states mm-hmm. with Syria. And also the, it's a risk of sanctions, secondary sanctions, which also kind of right. um, plays a, a, a negative role. And um, yeah, it, it, it remains to be seen in, in, in which direction this will develop. Because, uh, I mean, if you look at, for example, Gulf dealings with Iran, so UAE have been trading and uh, having, you know, uh, economic ties with Iran for years, despite of economic uh, sanctions. Iranians, a lot of Iranians coming to, to UAE, uh, to, to Turkey, using their financial systems and uh, economic benefits yeah. by passing sanctions. So if there were a will, political will in the Gulf to do that, I think that can happen quite easily. They could find ways to bypass mm-hmm. sanctions. We have this question of reconstruction is going to, mm-hmm. that going to come up obviously in the next phase. And you know, so far with the US and, and the European Union basically saying they don't want to have any hand in this, they don't want to reward Assad and the, his cronies for the things that they've done during the war, then it does kind of open up this question of, well, one, can there be reconstruction? And if so, who's going to pay for it? Right. And uh, definitely neither Russia nor Turkey and Iran even China can alone right. uh, do that. And I think Moscow understands it pretty clear that uh, it needs external help in, uh, in reconstructing the country. And um, I think that uh, this is why it uh, started to be more focused on the regional players mm-hmm. on, on the Gulf rather than on Europe. Because this is a clear understanding which come even more clear in the last two years when Europeans were unable to introduce its instax mechanism with uh, mm-hmm. Uh, for trade with Iran for uh, bypassing, for bypassing the U.S. sanctions. Yeah. Obviously, it's not working because uh, Europe cannot go against U.S. in this question. And I think that also played a role in sending a clear signal that, okay, it's it, it doesn't make sense to focus much on Europe because it won't, won't right. go. Because there are other reasons apart from the sanctions why the Europeans are reluctant to do that. Of this. course. But I mean, that, that actually, um, Europeans condition any aid, any reconstruction to political reforms. Mm-hmm. So some sort of exchange. And uh, I think for Russia, Russia doesn't have a problem with that. Here, the biggest problem is uh, is Damascus itself. So where Assad um, believes he is a winner, and why would he compromise or make concessions? Sure. If he, as he like, you know, won basically. Mm-hmm. 
But the question is that I think also Assad is not stupid. I mean, I think he understands quite clearly that he cannot maintain country for like in the, in the long run being allied only with, with Iran, mm-hmm. not being opened to other players. Right. Because well, that certainly if he doesn't want to become an maneuver. Iranian satellite. Yeah, sure. And I would say even, you know, Damascus would be open to reconciliation with, with anyone, even with Turkey. Mm-hmm. So in the recent interview, Assad was asked whether you, you know, would shake hand with, with Erdogan. Say, I mean, yeah, although I don't like <laughs> this person, I mean... Uh, I would do anything for the interest of my country, mm-hmm. like sending a signal that basically dealings or direct talks, right. uh, agreements with Turkey, I mean, between Damascus and Ankara are, are possible. Mm-hmm. And he's open to that. And here is uh, the main challenge for Moscow comes into play, how to manage your ally Assad to be more prone to compromises and more inclined to, you know, give some concessions. Because in this situation, you cannot last forever. Yeah. And also Russia cannot, you know, be supportive forever without getting dividends yeah. out of what it already invested. Mm-hmm. Can we talk a little bit about the domestic political context in Russia? Mm-hmm. So how much public support is there for Russian operations in Syria? Has there been a kind of backlash like you've seen in some of the Western countries over the, the long-term presence there? Well, the first important thing I think worth mentioning is that in the very beginning when Moscow deployed forces into Syria, there was uh, one big narrative, one of many, that it's going to be like the second Afghanistan for for Russia. Mm-hmm. And we see that it definitely didn't happen. The scale, Russia didn't send ground forces. Exactly. The, the scale of operation, the cost of operation, I mean, not that significant or even not not close to what uh, what was in Afghanistan. Second thing is that although the support for the Russian involvement in Syria uh, decreasing, it is still quite high, still the majority supports. But also with declining uh, support to the in, 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 uh, involvement in Syria, the entire interest in Syria by the public is decreasing as mm-hmm. well. So now less people like focusing or tracking events in Syria if uh, compare with 2015, 2016, right after yeah. deployment. So, and I don't think that here public opinion on that matters a lot. Mm-hmm. Because in general, like Russian public is not quite, uh, you know, focused on on foreign right. on foreign affairs. And also, I mean, Syria, it's not a neighboring country. Right. I mean, if well, it's Ukraine, because, of course, it's, it's, it's quite more important for the Russians. And also because it's not Afghanistan, you know, there aren't large numbers of casualties. Correct. Correct. People have a... a Bit more distance from it. So what happens next? Where where does Russia's involvement in Syria go from here? No one knows. I mean, if I knew, I would advise <laughs> someone else, you know, here. Yeah, well. <laughs> <laughs> so I think the most likely trajectories in Syria, I think that's uh, quite inevitable that Moscow will try to persuade both Damascus and Ankara to, and to start talks, uh, direct talks. And also, I think it's inevitable that uh, some sort of Russia-U.S. deal in Syria is needed. I mean, nothing will move forward when U.S. forces still on the ground. Yeah, that's quite clear. Mm-hmm. And uh, even for the United States, it's kind of uh, being there already for five years, right? Since 2014, yeah. and uh, in five, six years, not being able to to monetize on that or build any any capacity there with no vision and no mm-hmm. goal. I mean, uh, staying there 
indefinitely, it's not in the U.S. interest as well. And now the electoral campaign getting the pace and uh, the, the this issue of military presence uh, in foreign countries is also, uh, I mean, used quite broadly by, mm-hmm. by the candidates, as we saw, you know, in the, in the previous uh, electoral cycles. There just needed some terms on which U.S. could withdraw its forces, saving face, and also providing some uh, security guarantees for for Kurds, for example. And that's, you know, should be discussed between... between and, and, and probably, I think, we'll see in coming months some sort of uh, deals between Russia and uh, U.S. Yeah, well, that might be uh, one of the few uh, bright spots in the, in the U.S.-Russia relationship, of which there are not many right now. True. Great. Well, Alexa, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. Okay, thanks for joining. That's it for our show today. Uh, you can find a link to Alexei Klebnikov's bio in the show notes. Uh, and if you haven't done so, you should subscribe to Russian Roulette on iTunes, where you can also leave us a rating or a review. And if you're not on iTunes, you can check us out and subscribe on Google Play or SoundCloud. Also, you should send us mailbag questions. Send them to rep at csis.org with the words Russian Roulette in the subject line. We'll do another mailbag segment here hopefully soon. Uh, also, you should follow us on Twitter at CSIS Russia, or you can follow me at Dr. J. Mankoff. And of course, finally, as always, big thanks to everybody who worked so hard to make the podcast happen. That includes our producer, research associate, and program manager, Roxana Gabadulina, and the entire CSIS external relations and iLab team. Thanks for listening. Until next time.